Hello, my name is Ran, and this is the Flow Artist Podcast. Every episode, we interview inspiring movers, thinkers, and teachers about how they find their flow and much, much more. Well, it's been just two weeks since I last spoke with you, and it feels like the world has changed completely. Because of the coronavirus, people are uncertain, people are afraid. I'm afraid. Joe and I made the difficult decision to close our studio, Garden of Yoga, for a while. Due to my health history, I'm immunocompromised, so I'm most definitely self-isolating. But I found the following words from Caralia Grant, whom we've had on the podcast before, very helpful. Realise that however you feel right now is okay. It's okay to feel afraid, to feel anxious, to feel overwhelmed, to feel grief, to feel anger to feel incredulous. Notice if you're trying to feel the right way and instead give yourself space to feel whatever is arising for you and create the conditions that allow you to safely feel and digest your emotional experiences. Do yoga, have a bath, sit with a friend, hug your dog, whatever it takes to fully feel the truth of the moment. Fully feeling and digesting your emotional experiences in this time will keep you centred, energised, and in your power. Now, this might not fix anything, but I have been trying to digest this experience and I've really found that my yoga practices helped me immeasurably. I know many out there in the yoga teaching community are anxious. They want to be able to share this practice with the wider world, but this is becoming increasingly difficult. I reached out to Yoga Australia and they replied with the following. At this time of unrest and uncertainty, Yoga Australia understands the yoga community is looking for clarity and guidance in how they approach their business, teaching and relationship with their students. Rest assured that they are monitoring all government sites closely and providing up-to-date news that is relevant to yoga teachers and studio owners. This information can be found on the Yoga Australia website and is updated daily. Yoga Australia supports the need for social distancing to reduce and slow the spread of COVID-19. However, they understand your concerns about keeping yourselves and your businesses afloat over the next few months. For this reason, they'll be providing free, regular webinars to ensure members are upskilling themselves when necessary. Most importantly, Yoga Australia reminds you to find time and savour the joyful moments, the simple things, protect your mental health, find stillness in space, take breaks from the constant deluge of news, talk to your friends, talk to your students. Where possible, get out and go for a walk in the park or along the beach. Watch the clouds and lean on your community. We will all get through this together. And yes, this is definitely the time for the yoga community to come together. Even if we can't be together in person, we're so lucky to be able to live in an age of modern technology where we can stay in touch with our loved ones and our community. Joe and I are live streaming some of our classes on Zoom and plan to live stream a weekly yin session on Facebook on Thursday evenings. We did one last night and it went amazing. It's going to be interesting to see how All of this plays out, that's all I can say. 
Now, before I move on, I just wanted to read out this final piece from Jivana Heyman. This drastic slowing down is like the pause we take in yoga, the space between the inhale and exhale. Let's pay attention to how we feel in this space because it is changing our relationship to our day-to-day lives, removing the veil. We can see the ways that society isn't working equally for all of us and why access is so important. Unbelievably, we've been hearing story after story in the news saying not to worry, only older people and people with disabilities are at risk from this virus. The era of selfishness is over. We are entering a moment of connection and community. And these words are so important. And they bring me on to the topic of our episode today, restorative yoga for ethnic and race-based trauma. Now, true, we're all suffering at the moment, but people from already marginalised communities will no doubt suffer more. People with disabilities, the elderly and people of colour. If we want to help, it's important for us to understand this and work out ways that we can provide the community as a whole with these beautiful practices that we teach. In this conversation, my co-host Joe Stewart and I catch up with Dr. Gail Parker. Gail Parker is a psychologist, a yoga therapist, and the author of the upcoming book, Restorative Yoga for Ethnic and Race-Based Trauma. It's a wonderful book, and I definitely recommend you have a read. All right, I've spoken way, way more than I normally do. Let's get on to our conversation with Dr. Gail Parker. All right, well, Gail, thank you so much for speaking with us today. It's great to get the chance to speak with you. So I was just wondering if we could begin by you telling us a little bit about your background and where you grew up. I am in a location close to where I grew up right now, which is not where I spent my adulthood. I grew up in the military. My father was an Air Force pilot. And so I've lived in many, many, many places. But the place that I called home in my heart, because we lived there the longest, we were there for five years, which is a very long time for a military family, was in Arizona and California, in the desert, which is where I am right now, in the desert, which is what I love. Oh, it's so good to hear that after all of that moving around, you found a place where you feel at home and that's where you are now. Yeah, it is where I am now. I've been trying to get back here. I spent my uh, most of my adulthood in uh, Michigan and because my career took off for me there and my family started there and that was just where I spent my adult time. I've been trying to get back out west ever since. So my son did it for me. He <laughs> he graduated from law school and moved to Los Angeles. And uh, so I thought, oh, well, this is a good, good excuse to get back there. So here I am in the desert in 80 degree weather when it's like freezing every place else in, uh-huh. <laughs> in the world, as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, yeah. And so how did you discover yoga? I think yoga discovered me. I was, I had graduated from college. I was 20, I was in my 20s, maybe 22 years old. I graduated from college and I had gotten myself involved in what turned out to be a very abusive marriage and found myself back home, that meaning back in, uh, you know, where my parents were living at the time, to try to get some support for being in that situation. And I stumbled across a yoga class that was being given at the Art Institute, the local Art Institute. And it was being taught by a man named Mr. Black. And Mr. Black wore a black suit and tie to teach us yoga. This was before 
yoga studios. Nobody knew what they were. They did not exist at the time. And if you wanted to practice yoga, if you knew what it was, you would get a book, you'd look at the picture, you'd emulate the picture, and that would be your yoga practice. So Mr. Black was teaching this yoga class. And I fell in love with it immediately. I really, 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 really loved it every minute of it. And, you know, we would wear jeans and it was just not at all like it is today. And I didn't really even know exactly what it was or what we were doing. I just loved it. So I would go once a week because that's when it was offered. And he gave us a book, uh, the autobiography of a yogi to read, which was went way over my head at the time. But I tried to read it and tried to understand it. But I just resonated with it and loved it and loved it and loved it. So I used to tell, when I would tell this story, people would laugh like you did when I said Mr. Black wore his black suit and tie. And so <laughs> I, I started thinking maybe I had made the story up. I thought, you know, it was a really a long time ago. Maybe I made it up, but I liked the story, so I kept telling it. One day about, I don't know, maybe about three years ago, this is recent, I'm telling this story to a group of people who were uh, karate students who wanted to learn about yoga. And when I finished the story, a woman came up to me. She said, was his name Yogacharya? I said, I don't know. She said, I think I know him. <laughs> so I thought, oh, I didn't make it up. <laughs> About six months later, I was on Facebook and someone posted they had come back from this amazing retreat center called Song of the Morning and blah, 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 blah. So for some reason, I clicked on the link and I'm reading about Song of the Morning and it says Song of the Morning Retreat Center was founded by Oliver Black. <laughs> Mr. Black used to teach yoga at the Art Institute. <laughs> So I pushed on another link and there was his picture in his black suit and tie. I began to read about him and I didn't realize he was a protege of and a disciple of Yogananda, Paramahansa Yogananda. And it was in that moment that I realized I had been introduced to yoga by a master. Yeah. And I am positive that that's what kept me engaged for, for as many years as, as, as I was engaged with looking at books, looking at pictures and books and doing the practice. So in the 90s, I think that's when yoga studios began to proliferate in the United States. And so I thought I would take a yoga class. And boy, was that, oh my, I, I really, 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 really like that. And it was, of course, a very different kind of yoga than what Mr. Black was teaching, what the Yogacharya was teaching. And it, it was, I, I forgot to say this piece, it was yoga, that, that first encounter with yoga. I didn't know it at the time. But as I looked back over the years, I realized that's what got me out of that marriage. And it wasn't because I was going to get out of a, an abusive marriage. It was because through the practice, I, I transformed. I began to... I, begin to experience my own value, my own worth. You know, they, Yogananda teaches self-realization. That's his focus. And without realizing it, I had come to some realizations about myself at a very deep level. And within one year of that practice, I was out of that marriage with no drama, no, you know, it was, it was, it was just with, with clarity. So I attribute that to yoga. I didn't at the time because I didn't connect the dots at the time. So when I started practicing in studios, I did what mo many yoga students do. I wanted to learn more about it. So I thought, well, I'll take a yoga teacher training. Not to teach yoga, which is what many people say, but to learn more. And so my next, the next most influential yoga teacher in my life is named Veronica Zador. And she taught me how to teach yoga and introduced me to restorative yoga. And I was practicing psychology at the time. And I realized through the practice of restorative yoga, although that, now that wasn't my favorite yoga to practice. <laughs> I was doing 
you know, Ashtanga, Vinyasa, all of those very, very intense active practices, which I, I loved. But, you know, they say we teach the thing we most need to learn. And I just experienced the, uh, the wonder of restorative yoga. And I think it probably, I hadn't thought of this until now, it probably reminded me of the kind of yoga Mr. Black was teaching. Although, you know, we weren't using props or any of that, any, any paraphernalia. It was just this experience of coming into deep rest, deep peacefulness with awareness so that you could tell that that's what was happening. So I realized, I thought, you know what, this would be perfect for my clients. This would be just perfect for them to, when people come to talk to a psychologist, my assumption always was for many, many years that they knew that they had an inner life that was driving a lot of their behavior. It took me a long time to realize they didn't know that. They did not know that. And you can't talk someone into knowing that. Is this because this was an innate knowledge that you always had about yourself? Or do you think that this is something that you learned through yoga practice? I think it's an innate knowledge I always had about myself and the yoga practice enhanced it. And so it was just very clear to me that these, these, the philosophy of yoga and some of the practices of yoga, pranayama particularly, the meditation practices were ideal for people who were struggling to find emotional balance. And so when I finished teacher training, uh, my yoga teacher (laughs) said, okay, I'm giving you my restorative yoga class to teach, which I did not think I was prepared to do and didn't want to do, but how could you say no? So I said, oh, okay. She assured me I, I knew how to do this. So I did. But what I discovered, which is what I keep discovering over and over and over again, is that I'm a psychologist. And I thought, you know what, there are people who can teach this better than I. And I didn't have the time or the motivation at the time to learn as much as I knew I needed to learn to teach it the way I wanted to teach it. So I started recommending to my clients that they go to various, have various yoga experiences. Mm. And so they did, but it was just never quite right for them. And I understood because at the time, yoga therapy was not, very few people were practicing yoga as a therapeutic intervention. Although yoga is therapeutic, as we all know, but the intentionality wasn't there and the training wasn't necessarily there, at least with the people that I knew who were teaching yoga. So I just took a deeper dive into the studies, into the philosophy, uh, took a deeper dive into meditation trainings and um, commitment to meditation practices. And over time, I just integrated all of that into my psychotherapy practice. And so was there ever dilemmas or any struggle as you tried to weave these two different schools of thought together? Or was it more just an organic process that was about responding to the person who was in front of you? And that's just informed what you drew from. I never experienced any conflict between the way I practice psychology and the way yoga is taught and the way I would teach yoga. There was never any conflict for me. It, it seemed to me that, that actually I felt like I had come home. And you know, Yogananda says that, that yoga brings you back home, that it doesn't matter where you start, you will end up coming back home. And the way I practice psychology is not how I was taught but it's what I did, was to pay attention to what was right with people, to resist analyzing them, and to allow people to have their own experience of who they were and what was going on and to make sense of that. Well, that's what yoga does. 
That sounds exactly like the experience in a yoga class, in a good class. Yeah. It is. Yeah. That's what yoga does. Yeah. So for me, there was never any conflict. It was just a perfect fit. And the, and the best part about it was the, the, the thing that yoga brought to the, the practice was the embodiment of those ex- the experiences of me as a fuller human being. Me meaning everybody, not just me. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, definitely. The nice thing about yoga is as well, I'm not sure how long you tend to see people for as a psychologist, but it gives them something that they can continue to work with when they're in a better state, but still having no tools to help them navigate life. It's like a when they're finished with the, I guess, crisis or traumatic time in their life, it's this path that they can continue to work with all through the rest of their lives. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so what my what would happen is people you know people come to you when they're in crisis they're not coming to you when everything's going well so they would come in crisis and they would present their problem whatever that problem would be and we would get through the crisis and then they'd always want to stay because so i i mean i saw people for long periods of time because again i wasn't analyzing what was wrong with them even though that's what they wanted to do. They came in, they want that. You know, I, I, no, I want to tell you everything that's wrong and I want you to fix it. So I said, well, no, I tell you what, why don't we start paying attention to what's right and go with that? So that's a power struggle. You know, the client wants you, no, no, you don't understand. <laughs> this is what's wrong with me. So we'd get through all of that. And then uh, for people, because this is the way I practice, it's, it's how I practice. I see psychology as well as yoga as a tool for taking you deeper into understanding yourself and the meaning of life. And that's absolutely a lifetime journey that you will always continue to go deeper to. Yeah. It's a lifetime journey. Yeah. 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 So, and then let's see. So I practiced psychology for 40 years and then one day, five years, I think it was, it was either four or five years ago. I'm not sure. Four or five years ago, my office flooded one day. And it was the only office in the entire complex that flooded. And as it turns out, it was a flood that destroyed everything that I had. And so I was frantically trying to figure out how am I going to, you know, where am I going to move and how am I going to do this and blah, 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 blah. When it dawned on me, I thought, you know what? Maybe this is, maybe it's time for me to close this practice Wow! and take a deeper dive into yoga, this, the, you know, the teaching of it now. Not teaching yoga as asana necessarily, but teaching yoga as a therapeutic healing tool to support emotional balance. So that's what I did. That's what I'm doing. Did you have people who were kind of still quite dependent on you as a psychologist that you had to kind of find other psychologists for or did they just come to you in your role as a yoga therapist instead? So, so the way I ended up integrating yoga into my psychology, psychotherapy practice as more than, so for example, someone comes in for a a problem and they're, and they're anxious, you know, people are anxious and vulnerable and not feeling that hot. And so it's very easy to see that they are not breathing. And so you say, well, you know what, let's, I tell you what, why don't we just sit down and, and, and let's do some breathing together. I'll breathe with you. Just close your eyes and I'll close mine if you're comfortable with that. And and let's just take some intentionally deeper breaths. So we breathe together and we breathe together. And then I might say, tell me what you're experiencing now. And they would tell me what they're experiencing. And we do a little bit more breathing. And then I might add a few things to it. You know, hold your breath at the top of the inhale 
exhale slowly, hold it at the bottom. I might do some of that. Tell me what you're experiencing. They would say so. And then um, we would finish all of that up. And then I would say, how are you feeling now? I feel great. (laughs) And then I would say, that is always available to you. That's so powerful. That is always available to you. And then we would talk, you know, and then we would, we would talk. So that would be the initial way I began to integrate the, the, the yoga into the talk therapy. And then I think when I was in yoga teacher training, it was 9-11 the, when, when the, the Twin Towers in New York collapsed. I was in teacher training at the time. It was a very traumatic time for most of us. And I remember a flight attendant came to see me. She was supposed to have been on one of the planes that crashed. She was a young mother and she was just totally traumatized by the whole thing. So I started, I thought, well, I'm in teacher, I'm in yoga teacher training and I'm a therapist and I can combine the two. And so I did. She loved it. It took one year and, and I think that girl flies by herself now. I think she has grew wings. You know, she, I mean, she went back to flying and, and just loved every minute of it. So again, I applied what I knew very, very specifically about yoga and we did yoga together in that experience. And yeah, it, I mean, it was pretty amazing. And so then what did I do? So I was teaching, <laughs> I started teaching, I, a friend of mine who I trust completely said, would you please teach a restorative class in my studio? So I said, okay. This was again about seven or eight years ago. I said, sure, I will. And I had no, I didn't think the class would build because at that time, nobody, everybody was taking, um, I call it Cirque du Soleil. Everybody was you know, doing trapezes, all that stuff. But the class built. I had 25 students in this class. It was amazing to me. And then one day, my friend closed the studio with no notice whatsoever. So I was trying to figure out, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And I remembered I had a space in my office. So it was big enough for four people, four or five people. So I started inviting my clients who were in, who would come to my class, you know, let's, we can continue this. And it grew and grew and grew and grew. And I had to move out of my big office into the little office where I was teaching yoga to accommodate. Really, there were, I think we would have like 20 people coming in, you know. Oh, wow. Most of them were clients and some of them were not. So I always, so I was able to, I was using, again, restorative yoga as a therapeutic healing modality. And it was very powerful. It was very powerful. And because I'm a psychologist, we could process and we did process. We didn't just do the practice and go home. So it was, it was awesome. And that's when I began to realize that's when the office flooded. And then I decided it was time to terminate. So the original question was, did I have people dependent on me? No. As it turned out, no, my clients were not that dependent on me. They were coming, but they were all very well-functioning, very high-functioning people, very capable of not ever seeing me again, and they would have been just fine. So, And I knew that. They just enjoyed seeing you so much. They wanted to keep coming. <laughs> yeah, they did. It's true. It's true. Because it was, it was a person. It was, now we're in, in personal growth. We're not healing psychopathology. I never dealt with deep psychopathology. It was never an interest of mine or a skill that I had. So I was always, I was more focused on, I was trained in humanistic psychology and existentialism. And so I was more focused on personal growth. And that was the nature of the practice. So again, that's why yoga was totally compatible with what I was doing. So when I closed the practice, they were sad, (laughs) but I knew, and there were a couple that needed referrals and I made them and then they didn't go. So, 
<laughs> yeah, so it worked out. It worked out well. And that's when I took a deeper dive into this new area of interest that I have developed, and that is the restorative yoga for healing race-based, ethnic and race-based stress and trauma, which is very powerful and exciting and exciting. Yeah. Excellent. Well, on that topic, could you perhaps talk about that a little bit? I'm sort of curious, in what ways might race-based trauma differ from other types of trauma, if there is a difference? There is a, there is a huge difference. I had a woman from Denmark asked me, she said, so she said, what's the difference? She said, you know, it's, it's it, physiologically, is there any difference? The answer is no. Physiologically, there is no difference in various traumas. It's the context within which it occurs that matters. So race-based stress and trauma are regarded as not pathological conditions that need to be healed, but as injuries, emotional injuries that need to be that need to be you need to recuperate from the injury and a race-based stress and trauma is it's based on an emotional injury that's caused by a racial a race-related event that causes emotional pain that's what it is it's ongoing it's cumulative it's recurrent it is unlike ptsd which is, number one, considered a pathological condition based on a life-threatening event that occurs that the, that the individual has not been able to overcome, has not been able to get over it yet. So there, there, it's a very different kind of trauma and should not be confused with PTSD. It is possible to develop PTSD, but the researchers, the research shows that, that they, they think that's partly do African Americans and Asian Americans and the Latinx population have higher rates of PTSD than whites. And the thinking is it's because of unaddressed race-based stress and trauma that creates a higher and increased level of PTSD in non-whites, which I think is fascinating. So there's very little research in the topic. And in, in, in behavioral health, there's not there's more there's more research happening now. But there's not that much, and there's no research in yoga on the topic. And so I thought, well, I think I'm going to look into this. And, and that's what I've been doing, because I knew from my own practice, meaning not as a practitioner, but as a, a practicing therapist, that I could see that these practices, particularly restorative yoga, would have a deeply healing effect on people who were suffering from ongoing, recurrent, and cumulative trauma. And that seems like a really key difference because, say, your example with the air hostess or the flight attendant, her trauma was based on an event in the past. But when you're working with someone who's dealing with race-based trauma, it's like you never know when another event is going to occur because society is still set up in a way that unfortunately racism is very prevalent still. So, I mean, this might be a little bit clumsy, but I can imagine that your practice with someone whose event in the past was about moving on. But when you're working with someone where that trauma could still happen, it might be more about how do I manage this on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, exactly. And but it and it's even more subtle than that because because what we're really working with in restorative yoga, which is what what I love so much about it, what you're really working with is the nervous system. 
and you're stimulating the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the part of our nervous system, as you know, that, that calms us down, that slows us down. So when the parasympathetic nervous system, the part of us that rests and digests, and the autonomic nervous system, our fight-flight response, the part of us that mobilizes, when those two are in balance, see, usually it's taught that it's one or the other. Either you're in uh, parasympathetic, you're in uh, sympathetic nervous system. But it's when the two systems are in balance that we find homeostasis. So it's not one or the other. It's both and. We need both. We need to be able to move. That's a sympathetic. We need to be able to rest. Parasympathetic. People who are experiencing ongoing stress and trauma need a chance to rest. When you're on high alert all the time and you don't know it because it's chronic, because it's a lifelong event, you need an opportunity to come into stillness and feel safe in the stillness. People who are stressed and traumatized don't have that experience and they don't trust it. So they keep going. That makes so much sense. Yeah. Yeah. And um, we were really interested in your thoughts on neuroception and how sometimes after trauma, we might not even be able to trust what our nervous system is telling us because of that systemic state. Mm -hmm. So Stephen Porges is the one who coined that term neuroception. And neuroception is the nervous system's response to any perceived danger or safety. It's The nervous system is, is scoping always for safety and danger. It wants to keep us safe. So neuroception is the nervous system's ability to determine, to, to detect whether you're safe or not. But it doesn't always get it right because if you have a dysregulated nervous system, if for example you're on high alert most of the time, then you are you may see danger where there is none. By the same token, you might feel safe where you shouldn't. So again, the work as far as I'm concerned, the therapy is in regulating the nervous system. How because it, because these are not thought processes. It's not a choice. You're not it's not like you have a choice or that you're thinking about it. The choice you have is when you have a sense of, when you get startled, let's say, for example, or you have a sense of danger, fear, the choice you have is to pause, take a breath, and discern whether or not the fear is coming from an internal trigger or an external threat. Easier said than done. But that's what the teaching is. That's what you learn through the practice. When you practice just breathing, for example, and you practice controlled breathing, number one, you're stimulating your parasympathetic nervous system. Number two, you're learning how to pause before you react. And that's absolutely that power of yoga, just to give us that space between a reaction and a mindful response to a situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Again, to know is the is the threat internal is it an internal trigger something I am a story I'm telling myself because that's the other thing about neuroception or is it an external danger? The story. So what happens is I get scared. Let's say so I have a, a a fear response. Then I make up a story that matches the fear response. I think that is so interesting. And then I keep and then I react to the story. We, you know, in psychology, you learn that, that your, your thoughts create the feeling. Not true. It's not true. You have an impulse, a nervous system response, and then you make up a story to match the response. Hello, Ran here. Normally, I'd ask you to join our Patreon page at this point, but instead, I just wanted you to perhaps have a bit of a check-in. Have you been outside in the sun today? 
Have you talked to a friend? Is there anyone you know who might be particularly vulnerable right now who could use some help, maybe even a phone call? Social exclusion can feel really lonely, and these are some small suggestions to help with that sense of isolation. And of course, restorative yoga practices can also be very helpful in tough times. On that note, let's get back to our conversation with Gail. And you also talk about a concept of feeling safe in your vulnerability, which feels like a deeper layer to this when you have that little bit more time and maybe quiet time Mm -hmm. after the event to explore this on a more subtle level. Would you like to speak to that, that concept of feeling safe in vulnerability? Yeah, the practical reality is, so I was, I, was, I'm a, I was always a practical psychologist, and I'm a practical yogi as well. The practical reality of all of this is, is when you, if you don't know, if you're, un, if you're under stress, ongoing stress, you don't know what relaxation feels like, you may not know what safety feels like, because you're always on high alert. And when you're on high alert, you're always looking for a way out. I guess when you're just getting through your day and that is already a big struggle and a big challenge, there's not space for this. Yeah, exactly. So here you come, let's just say you come to yoga. You do your little yoga practice and now you're in Shavasana and you feel like you're going to jump out of your skin. You can't stand it. Or you're in a restorative yoga class and you feel again like you're going to jump out of your skin because it's practiced in stillness. It's practiced in quiet. You're, there's not a lot of motion going on. The motion and restorative is in, in the breath. That's what's moving is your breath. And, and, and the life force, the, the chi is moving. But your limbs are not. So to have the experience of feeling safe in that in stillness is like a miracle to people who don't know about that. Do you understand what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, Absolutely. So once you feel it, though, once you've had, see, this is, this is what I love about all of this and why I love yoga ma- uh, matched with psychology. Once you've had the experience, it's yours. Oh, that's what that feels like. Oh, now I know when I'm stressed. Now I know when I'm not. Oh, which would I rather feel? Oh, <laughs> not. Y- you know, it's that. But that takes time, as you know. I mean, this, is, this does not happen instantly. <laughs> what do you do as a teacher and as a facilitator when you are leading the class and you can tell that someone is having that experience, that they do just want to jump out of their skin? Are there strategies that you bring in to help to guide them to a place where they feel safe? Or is it really about allowing them the time and space? So when I'm teaching, what I teach is that it is important that each individual taking the, the, having the experience have their own experience. You set it up so that, that people feel safe coming, just even coming into your presence. So in order for people to feel safe around you, you have to be safe. Our nervous systems co-regulate one another. If I'm calm and centered, not pretending that I am, not acting like I am, but if I'm really calm and centered, that calmness and centeredness is contagious. And if you come in agitated, in my presence, you will begin to slow down a little bit. You'll start calming a little bit. You won't know. We're not having the conversation. That's just the experience. So people might say something, oh my God, it feels so peaceful in here. That. Okay. So that's where it starts. 
So then you say, okay, so now we're going to do this restorative yoga class or meditate or whatever it is we're going to do. And you, you create a situation where you invite people to come into themselves in a safe way. You teach them how to create a safe internal holding environment. And you teach them that at any point. If they want to come out of it, they can. But you, you invite them. You use tone of voice, which is soothing, hopefully. I mean, I've had, I've had teachers who've, who've taken uh, voice lessons to ensure that their tone of voice is soothing. It's rhythmic. You're breathing. You're the teacher. Your breathing is complete and full. And you're mindful and you're paying attention to all of that. You're greeting each individual who comes in in a very welcoming way in a friendly way, in a warm way. That's how it starts. So now they're feeling, this is, this is kind of nice. So then you take them through the practice and you notice somebody's really agitated. So that tells you that there's discomfort. So as the teacher, you, what I suggest always is you, you go to the person quietly. This isn't a restorative class. You go to the person quietly and you get down on their level and breathe with them. You don't say anything. You're just breathing with them. Your breath is matching their breath. Sometimes that's enough for the agitation to stop. And if it's not, sometimes let's say a foot is wiggling. Sometimes just whispering and saying, ah, I'm going to put my hand on your foot. And then you do that. And they say, okay, and you do that. And then that can be enough to just bring awareness to the fact that there's this twitching going on. And sometimes you, you make an adjustment with the whatever props you're using, you know, when you're trained, you know, you know, you're trained to use the props and you know what to do. And so you invite a different positioning. And now they come into this deep place of rest and stillness. All of that is really important. All of that. And so for again, for people who are, are stressed out, a lot of the time, feeling taken care of, you know, how we talk a lot about self care, we do in the United States, and everybody's in talking about the importance of self-care. So self-care is very important, but you know what else is really important? Feeling taken care of and being taken care of. And the, the experience of that in a restorative yoga cl uh, uh, class is healing. Actually, that's a really interesting point because I have heard this criticism of the concept of self-care because it puts the onus on the individual to look to themselves and take care of themselves and takes the onus off society as a whole to stop creating the conditions where yes. people are in a state of mind where they need yes. care and they need healing. It kind of just makes it all the individual's problem when it's a societal issue. Exactly. It is. And it's up to each other. We are each other's keeper as far as I'm concerned. It's up to each other to take care of each other. And so having that experience is healing. Absolutely. So you, so if you have that mindset going in as the teacher, it's, it's your mindset. You have, to, you have to be aware of what you're doing and why you're doing it. And your presence itself is more important than the technique that you use. The techniques are important, but it's not enough and it's not everything. It's who you are and what you're bringing. And you're, if you're bringing a calm, steady, empathic presence to the encounter that's the healing and I know you've written some really interesting commentary on why is it that when we do start to feel relaxed when we do start to meditate when we're in this safe that we feel safe 
all of our stuff does come up and deep stuff that maybe we didn't even know was there. Because it's been waiting <laughs> because, it's in, <laughs> because it's energy that has been blocked. That's, these are our samskaras. It's blocked energy that wants to release. So when you feel safe in stillness and this stuff comes up, which it will, when, look, when the mind comes to rest, the body relaxes. When the body relaxes, it releases energy. The form of energy release might be mind chatter. Your mind might get really, 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 really busy. You might feel like you want to jump out of your skin. You might have an involuntary twitch. You might have an emotional outburst, either crying or laughing. Have you ever had that experience where you just got the giggles? Yes. <laughs> and, yeah, that's a release. I mean, that's it. You know, it's, it's, it's no different than than having a, an outburst of tears, for example. This is all energy trying to release. And I think that when people understand that, when you can communicate that to people, and the only way you can communicate it is if you know it yourself, you, because you're having the experience yourself. You can't, these are, you can't intellectualize these things and be effective. So if you really understand and appreciate the fact that, 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 yeah, this is energy that, that is trying to release. And when you can just relax, stay still and let it go, it goes and it doesn't come back. And so that's what creates the samskara, I guess, when we're not giving this energy space to release and we're keeping it bottled up and we're not kind of exploring that deep stuff that needs to be explored. That's when it just keeps lurking mm-hmm. under the surface. Yeah. And you don't, and you know, I'll tell you something, you really don't even have to explore the meaning of it. What's more important than understanding why or what is that it releases. Now, where I think, again, this is the marriage of psychology and the yoga practice is because of my training, we can explore it. And I think that, you know, one of the, you haven't asked me this question, but (laughs) you can answer it anyway. (laughs) I'm going to answer the question, which I think the question was, if I can remember it, it was something like, oh yeah, you uh, asked me about the webinar. Yes. uh, Shining a light on racial distress, I think it was called. And you wondered, wanted me to address the fact that, that, you know, should people, people wonder, should I be teaching this to my students? The answer is no, probably not. I mean, nobody's coming to yoga to get over race-based stress and trauma. That is not why people are coming. Unless you're offering a workshop on it with that title and they know, oh, yes, I'm coming for that. But if they're just coming to a class, this is not why they're coming. However, what will happen in a yoga practice, whether you're being still or in an active practice, it is likely that that some of your stuff is going to come up. And it is likely that issues of race-related and ethnic-related injuries are going to surface. What I think is important is that yoga teachers, because the, the, the yoga world is becoming more racially and ethnically diverse, this is the 21st century, yoga teachers need to, and, and most of the yoga teachers in the United States are white, need to be conversant about, need to be able to have the conversation or process information around race and ethnicity when it comes up. Um, it's more about considering things from another perspective so that you can not make things worse for people in your yoga class. Exactly. And in the United States, I I can only speak for the United States, one of the, I don't know if it's unique to the United States, it it, it appears to me that it might be. 
I've done a lot of this work in various forms. The United States is in denial about all of this, won't talk about it, or gets real defensive about it. It's very difficult. We're in Australia, and Australia is also is not very good about talking yeah. about race. Yeah. And neither is New Zealand, which is where I'm okay. from. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. like I, I just read a, a recent article about suicide rates amongst the Maori population, uh, mm-hmm. particularly Maori men being twice as much as non-Maori men. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's obviously something that's going on in both those countries. Okay, so it's not just unique to the United States. So Unfortunately not. I, I think perhaps well, the discussion in the United States is a little bit further on, which is why we're really? able to talk to you about it. Yeah. Okay, yeah. All right. yeah. okay. that's pretty amazing. Well, <laughs> well um, there's, there's a recent case in Australia, a young Indigenous man from like 19. 19 was shot and killed by a police officer in his own bed. We obviously don't know the entire situation, uh, which is part of the problem, but um, it's only due to intense protesting in Australia that this police officer was put under arrest and he was out on bail the same night. So, and, and like, yeah, yeah, well, that's in this case as well. Emergency services and the victim's own family were kept away from the room for 10 hours. After the event. So, yeah, unfortunately, I don't think Australia is any better at addressing these types of issues. These issues. Well, and I assert that it is not just non white people who need this work. The white people who can't talk about it, who are defensive about it, who, um, you know, you've heard of white fragility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, who, who experience white fragility need this work. That's, as far as I'm concerned, evidence of race-based stress and trauma. When you can't even have a conversation about something, when you know, when you're in total denial about the fact that you are, you have a race and an ethnicity too, let's talk about it. That's a problem. So this is not just for non-white people. This is for everybody. I feel like, because I'm a white person and I feel like it's even more important for me to learn about other people's experiences and other people's perspectives because I don't be part of the problem. I want to be part of the solution. I want to mm-hmm. do what I can to help create a better world for everybody to live in because that's the world I want to live in. Me too. And I think that I, I just want to, uh, this may sound nitpicky and I guess it is, but that's what I'm going to be. But I see as a white person, then we see white people need to understand their own relationship to their own race and ethnicity mm-hmm. too. It's more than understanding other people. Mm-hmm. It's understanding me. Who am I? What does it mean to be white? What am I talking about? What, you know, what is that? Mm. What is that? That's the exploration that I'm encouraging people. And when I wrote this book, I'm hoping that, I'm hoping that people will get that, that this is not just for non-white people. This is everybody has to deal with their own racial hangups. And we all have them because we live in a racialized world. If we didn't, we wouldn't have to do this work, but we do. And that's, again, the part of me that is practical. We live in a racialized culture. Therefore, we have to deal with issues of race and ethnicity. And it's not just understanding other people. It starts with self-study, Svadhyaya, understanding me first. If I'm doing my inner work, I I think another question you ask is, how come I can have this conversation fairly non-defensively? Yes, yes. It's because I've done my work. I do my work. I do my work. I am very 
clear about my own issues around race and ethnicity and my the pain that I've experienced and the pain that I may have inflicted. And, and I'm willing and able to have those conversations and to experience the discomfort. Again, for me, that's the, again, where yoga comes in. You know, when you, when you think about Kriya yoga, when you, when you think about Svadhyaya Tapas and uh, Ishvara Pranidhana, Tapas is the ability and the willingness to stand in the fire of your own discomfort while you're exploring, doing these deep inner explorations that can be painful without jumping out of your skin, without getting defensive, without ending the conversation, without ignoring the fact that something has to, you know what I mean? It's that. That's what our yoga practices help us do. And I, I guess, you know, as you mentioned that, I am of uh, Maori descent, I guess. So I've lived with a, a little bit of, of that. Though I feel like the, the place I live, and I do live in quite a state of privilege myself, but there has always been that background well, I hope you don't mind me sharing this, but mm-hmm. like um, Ron went to the dentist the other week and he was like, I'm not sure, but I think my dentist is racist. <laughs> like I just got this weird vibe. And I was like. Well, his, his first question was, are you working at the moment? And <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm just not sure where that came from. So yeah, yeah. I was like, go to another dentist, go to a nice dentist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, you are. Yeah, you are. <laughs> you know where it came from. <laughs> That's the other thing that I that I think yoga teaches us. When you learn to trust your own experience, then you know when 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 you have been a you know when when a racial thing has occurred, you know it because you know it. You know what it feels like. You know where that came from. Mm. <laughs> and then you got to let this guy inside your mouth or open your business. <laughs> or not. True. You know, or not, you know. <laughs> I just yeah, wanted to yeah, get yeah. it done. <laughs> yeah, I understand that too. <laughs> I understand that too. And that is something that you talk about as well, that concept of social exclusion and in particular that unconscious mm-hmm. type of hostility and aversion that people yeah. experience. Yep. And that people do. See, it's both. It's not just people are doing that. People are excluding. What are you doing? You know, what are you doing? What what do you again if you if you again this is where I, I just I just love yoga. I love yoga so much. I love yoga more than psychology, but I am a psychologist. At least the way psychology is taught in the West. I, it's it's interesting to me. Yeah, so there are people who are excluded and people who exclude. Why are you excluding people? I mean, that's that's an important question to ask. Are those my kleshas? Is that raga and dvesha? You know, my preferences and my aversions. And probably that's what's going on. And what is the impact I'm having? And what is the impact I want to have? And how am I experiencing being excluded? It's painful. It's one of the most painful human experiences that we have, emotionally painful human experiences that we have. And it's not just emotional. As it turns out, you may know this, the research shows that our emotional pain and our physical pain share the same neural pathway. So that when your feelings get hurt, you are really, you're hurting physically for real. You're not making it up. So this is a bit of a left of center question, but something we've been wondering about. How did you, how did you end up appearing on Oprah some times? 
<laughs> How did that all happen? That, this is our gossipy question, yeah. by the way. <laughs> well, that was when I took a foray into um, television. Uh, I was a still a psych- I'm a psychologist, as I said, and Oprah was just getting started in TV. It was in the early 80s, and so was I. And I was an on-air psychologist at a, at a, a network, a local network station uh, in my hometown. And um, I had a, a show on the news. It was called Reach Out. And it was a psychological feature on various aspects of you know, human behavior and, and what was going on in the world. And then they expanded it, and I became the, the love and marriage advisor. <laughs> I did. I was doing that. I was a love and marriage advisor and I got a radio show. I wasn't asking for any of this and it just happened. And one day I was minding my own business. I th- had I stopped doing it? I hadn't really, I wasn't doing it as full time as I was because I found out again, I, I realized, I thought, you know what? I am a psychologist. I am not a television personality celebrity, although I loved it. It was so much fun, but I thought it's not who I am. And at that time when I was doing it, TV was really exploiting people psychologically. They were just, they were doing things that, that were just, I couldn't, I just couldn't participate in it anymore. And that's when Oprah, by the way, changed her format and started doing more positive things. And that led into the Super Soul Sunday stuff. So we both came to the same realization at the same time. But one day I was minding my own business. The phone rings. I pick up the phone. They say, hi, this is so-and-so. You want to be on the Oprah show? I said, why would I do that? So it scared me. So they explained it to me. So I said, oh, okay. Um, As it turns out, the woman who ended up becoming her executive producer had been an intern at the station where I worked locally. So she'd just seen you in action. And called me. It's the same. It's like in any other profession, you find each other some kind of way. So, yeah, so that's how. And so I went on the Oprah show. She liked me. I liked her. And so I kept going back. It w- you did not have to have written a book at the time to be on her show. And uh, I hadn't written a book and didn't plan on writing a book. And I was just being on the show and uh, fielding various topics. My son has posted them on YouTube. Uh-huh. Oh. You <laughs> I'm <laughs> yeah, sorry we missed out on that when we were doing yeah. our research. We're going to yeah, 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 that up. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 So if you want to see what I used to look like and <laughs> some of the stuff I did, it's, it's not bad stuff, by the way. But yeah, so that's how I ended up on Oprah seven times. Yeah. Were, were you able to bring bring any of your work around race-based trauma in, into Oprah? or No, that was no, but I did. Now there's a new show. It's a medical health show. Um, the Ask Dr. Nandy Show is what it's called. And he's got an international following, as it turns out. He talks about issues associated with race. And I've been on his show a few times having that conversation. Yeah. And uh, you briefly mentioned your book. Um, Perhaps we could talk about that. I know that the foreword is being written by the wonderful Amy Wheeler, who uh, was kind enough to connect us uh, together. So perhaps you could talk about that. As I said, when I closed my psychology practice, um, I took a deep dive into this whole issue of race-based stress and trauma. It was at a time when police murders of uh, young black folks were seemed to be on the rise, and it was very traumatic for people. So I thought, you know what? I am old enough. We, we know how to manage these things. People of my generation, we've been here. We know this. We know 
what to do. And I could tell that these young people, including my son, they hadn't had the experience. They didn't know about this. They didn't understand what was happening at all or how to manage it. So um, that's when I took a deep dive into exploring it and, and, and seeing who was doing what, et cetera. So the International Association of Yoga Therapists got wind of this and, and contacted me and said, would you be willing to write a proposal and present at our conference? I was afraid to do it because I didn't want to, I was afraid to do it with a, with a group, with a predominantly white group. I wanted to do the work with, primarily with African-American people and other ethnicities, non-white ethnicities or racial groups. But I thought, you know what, I do know how to do this. I, I know how to do this. So I, I just gathered up my little courage and said, okay, I would do it. Well, it was very well received. So they called me back the next year and said, we don't want you to submit a proposal. We want you to come and give a talk and do a workshop. So I said, okay, that was last June. And the name of the, the title of my talk, which was one of the best talks I've given, was called White is a Color Too. Because the International Association of Yoga Therapists is a 95% white organization. So I thought, well, I'm going to present this to these therapists and help them understand that they need to begin to take a look at their own issues around race and ethnicity if they're going to work with people who have these issues. So it was very, very well received, the talk was. And um, I wrote about some of it in, in the book. So a publisher approached me after that talk and said, I heard your talk. I came to your workshop. Would you be willing to write a book? I said, a book? <laughs> she said, yes. I said, whoa, okay. So I did. I submitted the proposal. They accepted it. And the book will be, the publishing date is June 18th, 2020. I'm a year ahead of schedule. It was, yeah, it was supposed to be a, a year from now. But I thought, you know what? I'm just going to do this. And Wow get it done. So I did. So I'm excited about it. I, 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 I like it. I hope you like it too. Oh, we're really looking forward to it. Mm -hmm. And this leads me into my next question because so much of what you write is about the importance of slowing down. And I love the quote, don't just do something, sit there. <laughs> and yet you've achieved so much. You just got your book <laughs> written a year ahead of your schedule. Like you're a pioneer in your field and doing like yeah. big, important work. Yeah. So you obviously do work very hard. Has it been a personal journey for you to value slowing down? I, yeah, I, my husband would say so. He was, <laughs> he, say, he would look at me like I was crazy and he would say, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? You need to just chill, you know? And I, yes, I found it difficult when, when I was much younger. I did. And over the years, as I, first, I grew up with a grandmother who was the epitome of peace and calm. So I had it modeled for me. So I knew what that looked like. And I knew what it felt like to be in the presence of that. And I always admired it. And so I always aspired to experience myself as peaceful and calm. And in my work, I was peaceful and calm. I had to be. I couldn't be reactive. You know, when you're, when you're listening to people's pain and suffering, you, you, you can't be reactive. And so over the years, through my yoga practices, my... my uh, intense yoga practices and my restorative yoga practices and through years of meditation and Tai Chi. <laughs> I, started to, I started taking Tai Chi. It's awesome. I've just learned to appreciate stillness and quiet and, you know, I do appreciate it. And I, I'll tell you this, it really is what helps you get more done sooner, quicker. 
It really does. That makes a lot of sense. I don't multitask. I do not multitask. I do one thing at a time. That's why I did that book. I said, okay, that's it. I didn't do anything. That's all I did. I did the book. It's done. So now I don't have to think about that anymore right now anyway. So I'm just, I, I just take my, I do take my time, believe it or not. I just have a lot of energy. I think, and I think the yoga practice supports that. Plus, I think I have a lot of energy anyway, but, but I'm not scattered. Makes sense. When you rest, you properly rest. And when you do stuff, you're all in. Yeah. I meditate twice a day. I do my practice, um, not as frequently as I used to, but, you know, several times a week I'm, I'm in a practice. Sometimes I take classes still. And I just lead a very quiet lifestyle. I, I, I really do. I don't lead a crazy, scattered, distracted, busy, busy lifestyle. I, and I think that's how, why I get done when I get done because I'm doing, because I really do live in the moment. And you know what? The older you get, I'll tell you, the older I've gotten, the, the more I realize how easy it is to live in the moment because, you, you know, the past is like, it's time to archive the past for me. The past really is the past. It's not that I've forgotten about it. It's just the past. And the future doesn't hold as much promise anymore. You know, when you get to be my age, you're not so much looking to the future. You really have the, the luxury or the, I don't know, I'll call it that, but of just being in the now. Because that's really all there really is. It's nice. Is your husband a yogi too? He is a karateka. He's a, oh. he's a yogi. Yeah he's, yeah, he's a black belt in karate. And he, yes, he started out, I, I, <laughs> I twisted his arm into yoga. So he, he came kicking and screaming into yoga and fell in love with it and practiced for about 10 years. And then, you know how I said, Paramahansa says that yoga brings you, always takes you home, takes you back to where you need to be. And he went back to his first love, which was karate, got his black belt. And now we're, we're, playing we're playing tai chi together <laughs> it's like the meeting point between yoga and karate is like elements of both. it is it really is actually <laughs> it's fun <laughs> yeah. we've actually got quite a few more questions but i think uh, we, we might have oh to um <laughs> we have to hold on to those yeah <laughs> i'm sure we could talk for hours longer but we might need to cut it a bit short I, I will ask you one more question that i strategically did not put down on <laughs> our list <laughs> so i was just wondering if you could distill everything that you've learned in your career and everything that you teach down to one core essence what do you think that one thing would be oh my goodness one core essence that that more than one word or just one word oh, one as many word. words as you like mm. oh, okay one core essence I'll, what, what's coming up uh, is be here now just be here now Beautiful. I think that's a lovely note to leave people on. We'll mm. just let them be here now. Beautiful. Okay. Well, um, th- <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm going to do. Nice. Well, thank you. You've inspired us. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for spending this hour with us. It's been um, quite educational for me. And Yeah, you've left me with so much to think about. Thank you so much for everything that you've shared and all of the questions that you've asked. And all of the work that you put out into the world it feels very needed and very powerful. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate the invitation to chat with you. 
And I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Gail Parker. She's absolutely wonderful and has so much wisdom to share. Again, I can definitely recommend her book, so please check it out. I'll leave a link in the show notes for that one. Now, for our next episode, we're catching up with Alicia Leo. Alicia is a yoga teacher, and we speak with her about Kirtan, queer inclusive yoga events, and many other things. So look out for that in two weeks' time. It was a really fun conversation. Our theme song is Baby Robots by GoSoul and is used with permission. Get his music from gosoul.bandcamp.com. We would like to honour the elders of these wisdom traditions of yoga and mindfulness, which we share with the world. And we wish to honour the custodians of the land where this podcast is recorded, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Thank you so much for listening. Joe and I really appreciate you so much. Aroha nui. Big, big love. <laughs>